This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about the Gerasene demoniac, which Matthew actually calls the Gerasene demoniac. Anyway, that there's a whole question as to where the story takes place, but that happily does not necessarily affect what we're going to talk about. I've been saying all along that we're going to talk about demons eventually. Well, this is that day. And I'll share some common myths about the devil and the existence of the devil. And I'll share the marks of the demonic in culture. And then I'll end with a personal story. So let's start with Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniac. This is from Luke. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And as he stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had a demon. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beseech you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and fetters, but he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these So he gave them leave. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how he who had been possessed with demons was healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, and they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demon had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So that's the story. That's the version from the Gospel of Luke. But Mark and Matthew both have versions of the same story. Some point out that it was Mark's intention to make this kind of a nighttime story. In Mark's, it's right after what we just covered with the storm and begins with, they came to the other side of the sea. And when he had come out of the boat is when the apostles met the demoniac. So you can picture Jesus and his apostles pulling up on the part of the lakeside that had caves and the limestone that were used as graves. 
The storm had been dissipated, so you can see the reflection of the moon on the water. They land in the dark of night and meet a man shrieking in the graves, his cries punctuated by clangs and loud noises, since Mark tells us, night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Luke adds the detail that for a long time he had worn no clothes. So not only do they meet a guy shrieking among graves, they meet a naked guy covered with bruises and blood shrieking in the graves. So this is horror movie stuff. In Matthew, we get the further detail that the demoniac had a disciple or a flunky, a partner. There were two of them out there. My college professor, Erasmo Leva Maricacus, compares it to a kind of ghoulish imitation of the presentation. Only instead of meeting a holy man and a holy woman, Jesus meets these two scary figures. It's significant that in each of the accounts, the demons immediately recognize Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, God. In Mark, this adds to the mounting drama behind the question, who is this? Who is this mysterious stranger? But the devil seems to know exactly who he is. There's a scary detail in Luke's account that we just read. Before it finally works, Jesus, we learn, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, but the spirit hadn't left. So there is some indication that Jesus' first attempt to exorcise the man didn't take. Human beings have free will, so we can hold on to our relationships until we decide not to, even our relationships with the devil, I guess. Is that what that means? Jesus then asks the demoniac's name and gets the response, legion. That means many, but it also means soldiers. So it seems like this man is possessed by a multiplicity of demons, reminding me of the demons who fought Michael and then followed Lucifer out of heaven down to earth. Once they tell Jesus their name, he casts them out and the demons ask to be sent into the pigs and get their wish. The pigs are a sign that this story is taking place in the Gentile land. There would not be Jewish swineherds since eating pork was forbidden. The demons came out of the man and entered into the swine and the swine drowned themselves in the lake. The swineherds fled and went to the city to tell people what happened. Then townspeople come out to see what happened. That's why in the, the story does not actually seem to be a nighttime story in Luke's and Matthew's version. Or maybe even Mark's for that matter. Anyway, but imagine being one of these townspeople. You hear this tale and come out to see for yourself. And you find this man who you knew to be a violent, naked maniac, now sitting clothed and calm next to this mysterious stranger. Then you look down at the lake and you see the pig corpses floating there. In Mark, it says there were thousands of pigs, 2,000 pigs. Uh, if this is a nighttime story, that's even more frightening because you see the moonlight glinting off floating pig corpses. So the people beg Jesus to leave and you can kind of see why. Some commentators say that they were greedy and didn't like the idea of Jesus ruining their pig business. They tisk-tisk about these people who valued pigs over human souls. But I don't think you have to go there to understand why these people were afraid. You don't have to have a profit motive to be weirded out when you see your lake has been filled with an astounding number of pig corpses by an itinerant preacher. So they asked him to leave because they were seized with great fear. So he did. Again, we have free will, even to send our Savior away from us. And then comes the part that gets me every time. 
The man who had been cleansed of demons begged that he might come with him, but Jesus says no. This passage came to mind when I went to seminary. I was all excited about going. I was going to give my life to Jesus and be a priest, only to get a clear answer that, no, Jesus didn't want me with him in that way. I picture the cured man with one foot on Jesus's boat and one foot on the shore, ready to jump in and spend the rest of his days with Jesus, living his life and preaching his message. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to come with me. Some people talk about having their hearts broken by a human lover, someone they wanted to marry, and that's a painful thing. But I can't help but think that it pales in comparison to the feeling you get when Jesus says, no, I don't want you, go home. But more on that in a second. It's important to realize that Satan is real. I was eight or nine when a girl I greatly admired in elementary school set me straight on the devil. One day at recess, to impress her, I told her my very own theological theory. The devil couldn't possibly exist because God wouldn't create something evil and God created everything. I was waiting for her admiring agreement and was shocked to see her become visibly upset. Then the Bible is lying, she said. Do you think the Bible is lying? I didn't say anything and she calmed down slightly. She was still mad though and said, God created you and you sin. That's because he gave you free will. Well, he gave the angels free will too, and the devil used his to sin. And with that, she brilliantly gave the answer in nascent form to four common myths that many people hold to this day about the devil. So I'll take them one by one. The first myth is that the devil doesn't exist. According to the Bible, the Catholic Church, and nearly every major religion, not to mention the common sense knowledge that shows up in pop culture and horror movies and television shows, the devil does indeed exist. Demons are an inescapable part of the Old Testament. The creation story starts with the story of Adam and Eve and their sin, their fall from grace. At the center of that story is the devil who lies outright to Eve to get her to give up her friendship with God. The Old Testament later gives us names of three demons, Lucifer, Asmodeus, and Satan. So we know that there is not just one devil, but a number of angels who chose to oppose God. The New Testament mentions the devil more, not less, than the Old Testament. Battling with demons is central to Christ's mission. The first letter of John even goes so far as to say, quote, the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, end quote. As the Gospel of Matthew puts it, quote, They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. End quote. Note that the Gospel sees that those oppressed by demons and epileptics are in separate categories. This wasn't just a primitive understanding of disease. It was an understanding of the devil, who the Bible very well knows is different from epilepsy and paralysis. Pope Francis said, quote, look around us. It is enough to open a newspaper. We see the presence of evil. The devil is acting, end quote. So what is the devil? Pope Francis described, quote, he's not a, like a mist. He's not a diffuse thing. He is a person, end quote. Pope Paul VI spoke about the devil. He said, quote, what are the church's greatest needs at the present time? Don't be surprised at our answer, and don't write us off as simplistic or even superstitious. 
One of the church's greatest needs is to be defended against the evil we call the devil, end quote. There's an age-old battle between philosophers and poets about the nature of evil. Uh, philosophers like to say that there's no such thing as evil, it's just a deprivation of the good, and they've got a point, but the Pope kind of sided with the poets. Paul VI said, quote, Evil is not merely an absence of something, but an active force, a living, a spiritual being that is perverted and that perverts others. It is a terrible reality, mysterious and frightening, end quote. And the Vatican has issued updated norms for exorcism over and over again. So the second myth is that the devil is the opposite of God. Catholics do not believe that there are two superpowers in the cosmos, God on the one hand and the devil on the other, like the light and dark side of the force. Rather, we believe that there is one power, Almighty God, who is all good and the creator of everything, including the devil. So why is there a devil at all? The compendium of the catechism promulgated in 2005 explains, quote, Satan and the other demons were angels created good by God. They were, however, transformed into evil because with a free and irrevocable choice, they rejected God and his kingdom, thus giving rise to the existence of hell, end quote. God is love and he created the universe out of love. All of the creatures show his love, but only two kinds of creatures can love him back angels and human beings. Angels are spiritual creatures acknowledged by every religion and every culture in history. Like us, they have reason and will, the ability to think and the ability to choose. That means they can love. It also means they can choose not to love. We human beings live in time, and if we choose not to love, our choice plays out in slow motion through the decisions and actions of a lifetime. Angels live outside of time and eternity. If they choose not to love, that's it. They reject God in the eternal now of heaven and enter into the eternal darkness of hell. A third myth is that the devil wants to possess you. I was once offered the opportunity to attend an exorcism and write about it. The magazine that I was going to write for would pay me $1,000. So I asked a priest if I should do it. He said, you should not attend an exorcism out of curiosity. So I told him, look, they're going to pay me $1,000 and I kind of need $1,000. He said, you especially should not attend an exorcism for $1,000. So instead, I simply interviewed exorcists and the victims of demonic activity. I'd write the article, warn about being too preoccupied with the subject matter, and be done. Instead, I got sleepless nights, horrifying conversations with those who had been involved in exorcisms, and a new point of view on the demonic world. But I did learn that it's not true that the devil wants to possess people. Watching television and movies, you might think that the devil's greatest desire is to possess as many people as possible. That is not the case. Yes, the devil is real, and yes, he wants to see you damned, but it's not about you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't like you. He doesn't even hate you. He doesn't give a damn about you, and the pun there is totally intended. He just hates God, and so he wants to hurt God the only way he can. He knows how much God loves you, so he tries to hurt God by hurting you. Now, there really is such a thing as demonic possession. Diabolic activity generally falls into one of four categories, an exorcist I interviewed told me. The mildest forms are infestation of a place or an object. Uh, that kind of scared me when I heard him say that, matter-of-factly. Uh, next is obsession involving intense temptations. 
worse than that is oppression, an extreme, a kind of an external attack by evil spirits on a person with internal manifestations. The rarest and most serious form is possession. The exorcist said, quote, full possession means the devil takes control over the consciousness of the person. It uses the mouth of the person to speak. It uses the hands and legs of the person to do violence, end quote. And there are also several kinds of exorcisms. There's an exorcism that takes place in every baptism. There are simple exorcisms where you just say, go away, Satan, get behind me, Satan. But then there's this kind of public formal exorcism. This ritual is only carried out with the specific authorization of a bishop. It's a serious matter. An exorcist told me he only works with victims who have been given a clean bill of health from a psychiatrist and a medical doctor. He doesn't perform exorcisms on those who merely suffer from a physical or mental illness. So possession is real, but it is also rare. It doesn't happen without somebody actually agreeing to it in some way. Exorcists told me that dabbling with witchcraft is the most common way it begins, but another way it can happen is the same way it begins in movies from The Exorcist or the Netflix movie Veronica, Ouija boards. These devices are attempts to directly communicate with evil spirits. And people think they're harmless because it's a Hasbro game, but they are not harmless. Don't use them. Well, why is possession so rare? Because the devil knows he doesn't need to bother with possession. We give ourselves to him in ordinary ways without all that effort through sin. As I've quoted before, the Catechism says, Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. End quote. The devil doesn't want you, but he wants to make sure God doesn't have you. The easiest way to do that, the best way by a cost-benefit analysis, is to tempt you to sin. That way nobody gets upset, no one goes on the defensive against the devil. You just go your merry way to hell without raising any red flags. The fourth myth is that the devil can make you a rock star. <laughs> there are many stories about people selling their soul to the devil at the crossroads to get special abilities. We get riches, supernatural power, or guitar skills. The devil gets us. But victims of demonic activity know the truth. The devil may make glamorous promises, but what he delivers is regret and self-loathing. Compare two recent depictions of the devil. Fox Television's Lucifer, which ended its run in 2021, and Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. In Lucifer, the devil is a dashing Los Angeles nightclub owner with a devilish grin. In The Passion, he is creepy and gloomy, strangely attractive and repulsive at the same time. That's more like what he's really like. Pope Francis said, quote, I'm convinced that one must never converse with Satan. If you do that, you'll be lost. He's more intelligent than us, and he'll turn you upside down. He'll make your head spin, end quote. The devil offers easy pleasures, but never keeps his promises. He can't. Only God can give you what you need, and frankly, only God can give you what you want. One of the victims I spoke with said, quote, I don't experience him as a clever fallen angel. I'm not sure I sense a great deal of intelligence there at all. It's 
like they're working on some kind of animal instinct, end quote. So as a conversationalist, the devil is probably not like the demons in Lucifer on Fox. Wait, was it Fox? Yeah, it was. As a conversationalist, the devil is probably not like Lucifer on Fox or even the demons in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. He's more like the captured alien in Independence Day, a highly developed insect who answers the president's careful negotiations by simply saying, die. So what can, what can the devil give you? St. Thomas Aquinas, known for the precision and truth of his theological investigations, had a number of questions on the devil. One is, can the demons know our interior thoughts? No, Aquinas determines. The demons are pretty good at guessing your interior thoughts, he said. Uh, they're better at picking up cues than most intelligent human beings, but they don't know your, they don't have no access to your interior thoughts. Another is, can demons affect our thoughts and imagination? Yes, St. Thomas Aquinas determines. What happens to a culture then where the devil is active? St. Paul VI explained, quote, This matter of the devil and the influence he can exert on individuals as well as on communities, entire societies, or even events, is a very important chapter of Catholic doctrine, which should be studied again, although it is given little attention today, end quote. Fulton Sheen has a great talk online about the demonic in modern times, and he has three key issues that he picks out of this Gerasene demoniac story that we just read. First, the fact that the demoniac was naked. Second, the fact that he was violent, always bruising himself with stones. And third, the fact that his name was Legion, showing the disunity endemic in the demonic. So let's look at these three sides of the demonic. First, nudity. I'm recording this a couple of days after the Grammys, in which Sam Smith dressed as the devil and performed the song Unholy while bathed in red light. Women in white robes bowed before him, stroking him as other women, also bathed in red, with red costumes that exaggerated their breasts, danced around a cage that held one of the women. I found it utterly hilarious the next day when the mainstream news stories were saying, quotes, right-wingers were complaining that this was satanic. My gosh, they literally had a singer with horns on his head presiding over a hellscape of enslaved women. What could make it more satanic than that? How much clearer would they have to be? But the fact is our whole pornographic industry, which overlaps and intermixes with human trafficking so often, is a sign of how the demonic has captured our popular culture. Pornography is at epidemic proportions, and it's one of the three clear signs Fulton Sheen identifies of the demonic. Next, you have violence. And our culture today is awash in violence. Yes, there's the literal violence on the streets and police brutality and drug cartels and in inner city violence and in suicide. But then look at our media. We love violence. Most males spend multiple hours a week or every day playing video games, which are usually simulations of violence, sometimes brutal violence. Our movies are remarkably violent. I remember the old Lone Ranger TV series where the Lone Ranger would always shoot the gun out of his opponent's hand and then capture them. Watch Marvel movies today and there's none of that. It's comic book violence, sure, but it's brutal and constant. Why does the devil like violence? For the same reason he likes pornography. We are made in the image and likeness of God 
And if you'll remember back to one of those early episodes, Lucifer objected to God becoming man. It seemed odious to him that God would unite himself with this disgusting man-beast, a mere animal compared to the majesty and purity that was the angel's. So Satan loves to twist human beings into revolting forms as if to say, see, see how revolting these people are, and you chose them over us? An exorcist described to me how victims of possession will often imitate animals, grunting or arching their backs. Satan loves to twist human beings into revolting forms as if to say, see, see how revolting these people are, and you chose them over us? But at the same time, demons don't possess more people because we save them the trouble. We choose to imitate animals on our own. Okay, the last point was disunity, when the devil says he is a legion. And a lot of the current fascination with demonic activity comes from the disunity of faith. The priest in Alamos, Mexico, told me he used to be very skeptical about claims of demonic activity. He thought, um, maybe there's something there, but I bet a lot of this is just people going crazy. But after 25 years in Mexico, he said he changed his mind. Quote, people frequently consult with what are called advinos and brujos. At first, I gave very little credence to the power of these people, he said. But then over the years, I saw the effects in certain persons who consulted them, end quote. So the stories I collected for my article that I originally wrote for the magazine added up to a giant neon sign saying, stay away from witchcraft and other occult practices. When I asked an exorcist if witchcraft is a gateway to more serious demonic activity, he was incredulous. Gateway? It's directly dealing with the demonic. Nearly everyone they treat has been exposed in some way to Ouija boards, spells, hexes, white magic, or tarot cards, he said the stuff your local chain bookstore fills its shelves with because it sells so well. So if you're ever tempted by witchcraft, you might want to remember that this is directly dealing with the demonic. In fact, maybe with your pet sin, whatever it is, next time you face temptation, remind yourself that to give in to your temptation means cooperating with the malevolent will of a highly developed insect that hates you and wants to be with you forever. You'll find your old reliable sins lose a little of their allure. At any rate, you have the disunity of the demons on one side and the unity of Jesus Christ on the other. In the story that we read, the demons immediately recognize who Jesus Christ is. Priests, exorcists say that they've seen this in their own work. One New York area exorcist told me that this is one way he reveals if somebody is truly possessed. Quote, most commonly, I'll put the Blessed Sacrament in a pyx. When I go into the room to see the person, unbeknownst to them, I will carry the Blessed Sacrament. If the person is possessed, they know right away that I have it. They'll say, no, no, go away. I can't go near you. He won't let me. He won't let me. Or with a prayer, we'll sprinkle holy water. The person will react and say, stop that, stop that. It burns, it burns. Don't do that. Don't do that. And that alone is a sign of hope, I think for uh, the whole question of the demonic. These aren't simply horror stories. Horror stories work by attacking hope. They show a universe in which there's no way out. But we have a way out. We aren't helpless as we face the devil. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, the power of Satan is nonetheless not infinite. 
He is only a creature, powerful from the fact that he is pure spirit, but still a creature, end quote. Modern-day saints like Padre Pio and Mother Teresa fought the devil and won. The devil repeatedly attacked Mother Teresa, Father Amorth in Rome, told the National Catholic Register. An Indian exorcist kept him at bay. So if you want to stay away from the devil, stay focused on the sacraments, stay focused on Jesus Christ. But that brings up a personal story. This is a story that I haven't told publicly or written publicly and actually didn't plan to tell publicly until last week when the gospel reading of the story of the Gerasene demoniac came up. At the end of the gospel, Jesus says to the man who wanted to go with him, no, go home and tell people what happened to you. That made me think I should tell my personal story. So I asked a priest if I should. He said to pray about it. So I prayed about it. I went to the Blessed Sacrament, and I happened to have with me a commentary by the fathers on the gospel. Uh, And I opened it up to this passage and read these words from St. Gregory the Great. Quote, A legion of demons has been, as I believed, cast out of me. I would prefer merely to forget all of this that I have known and simply to rest at the feet of the Savior. But, lo, it is said to me so strongly as to compel me against my will, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, end quote. So it seemed like the result of my prayer was, yes, tell your personal story. So here it goes. It was years ago now that I focused on the fact that for my entire adult life, I've had recurring visions of my suicide. It was always the same violent image of my suicide, and it was always accompanied by accusations of worthlessness. I won't describe the image of a suicide that was recurring in my mind, but it was always the same one. And I would wonder, does this happen every day? And I think I pretty much determined that, yeah, it was a daily occurrence. And then I noticed, well, okay, more than daily, a couple of times a day. I was bothered by this, but I just kind of ignored it, thinking, well, this is just some trick of the mind that people suffer. And for years, I tried drowning it out. I had constant noise, including white noise, when I slept. I couldn't sleep without constant noise. I couldn't face silence because it was never silence for me. It was cacophonous with these images and these accusations. Well, during a particularly difficult part of my life, it became absolutely unlivable. I was having this image recurring once, twice, an hour, and these phrases repeating themselves about my worthlessness. So finally, I went to counseling. And oh my gosh, I'm so blessed to have gone to a Catholic counselor in a neighboring diocese who heard my story and asked immediately, have you ever tried deliverance prayer? It had never occurred to me, but as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, of course. So an incredible confluence of events happened next. In addition to the direction from his diocese, I got permission from my own archdiocese and a leading exorcist at another U.S. diocese. I did these extensive interviews uh, where they asked all kinds of questions to see where this might have come from. Because like I say, the devil does not intrude into your life uninvited. What we determined was this thing I did in college, so at the outset of my adult life, kind of around the time that these things started happening. I was with friends in my dorm, and I forget who introduced the idea, but we had a guy sit in a chair, and we repeated this phrase over and over again. I won't say what the phrase was. 
And then two or three of us, maybe four, put out one finger and lifted this guy in the chair effortlessly up over our heads. It was like he was floating, and then we brought him down effortlessly. It was incredible. Then a Catholic guy from our floor saw what we were doing and angrily made us stop, saying it was demonic. He actually got quite irate and jumped in the middle of us yelling, stop it, stop it, this is demonic. So we stopped. But it was really amazing that we had been able to lift this guy with our fingertips over our heads. Anyway, it was demonic, and it came out in the interview I did with these exorcists. So I began this process where I had to go through these daily prayers for giving people one category of person after another. I have uh, put the forgiveness prayers that I used actually on Benedictine College's media site. It goes through category after category of people, starting with yourself and your parents and going down even to service people, systematically recalling what they had done for you and forgiving them. Oh my gosh, it took me nearly an hour every day to go through all these categories of people and forgive them. But the exorcist explained that the devil thrives on unforgiveness and to for the thing to work, I had to go through all these areas and bring light to them. Uh, so I went through this audit of forgiving people day after day after day. After I did this for 30 days, I underwent this service. Uh, they were not super clear about what it was. No one called it an exorcism, but it involved me being in a chapel with a priest, saying things in Latin, putting a stole over my head, anointing me and saying these prayers. Uh, after the ceremony, I remember walking out into the sun and just being overwhelmed with gratitude. The images stopped altogether. Now I remember them because I'm grateful that they aren't recurring anymore. And when I talk about them, which is very rarely and in private, um, and the accusations of worthlessness stopped altogether also. I no longer have to sleep with noise. I no longer have constant noise in order to keep myself sane. Uh, it's really remarkable. And it's hard to express how grateful I am that this happened to me and that all the resources fell into place so quickly. I can't imagine there's people who are experiencing this kind of thing and don't have a priest that, or a Catholic counselor that they go to and then priests available to exercise them. Uh, so I feel really, really grateful for that. Um, so I'd rather not think about it or talk about it or write about it, but I want to say publicly here that Jesus Christ is still the liberator he is in that story. There's so much suicide in the world right now. Uh, men my age are most at risk of suicide. I can't help but wonder how many of these people had experienced what I experienced. Uh, throughout all the time this was happening in my life, I had a strong prayer life. Daily rosary or mostly daily. Daily mass or mostly daily. And so frequent Eucharistic adoration. So I was, it was always kept at bay. I was always close to Jesus Christ in the sacrament. And I shudder to think what would have happened if I didn't have these habits. The man pleaded to remain with him, but Jesus would not permit him, but told him instead, go home to your family and announce to them all that the Lord has done in his pity for you. And then the man went off and began to proclaim what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. And I have to say, after this happened to me, I have no fear. I know the devil is much more powerful than me, but he doesn't scare me at all like he used to. My roommate in college later became a great theologian, and I'll never forget what he said. Satan is a kindergartner compared to Jesus and Mary. The great saints would chase him away with a quick sign of the cross. 
I like to tell people to only be afraid of the devil the way you're afraid of cars. Right now, no matter where you are, at home or driving, it's likely that cars are hurtling past nearby at high speed. And you should fear them, they can kill you. But you don't have to live in fear of cars. Instead, you take simple precautions. You look both ways before you cross the street and you follow road signs. Well, it's the same with demons. Yes, they exist. Yes, they exist in large numbers. Yes, they are dangerous. But if you stay out of their way, there's nothing to fear. Forgive others, seek the sacrament of forgiveness for yourself and for your life. We don't have to live in a horror story starring the devil. We live in the light and power of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.